0: Welcome to the Two Cities Podcast. I'm John Anthony Dunn, and today we're going to talk about the making of biblical womanhood. And joining me to do that, we have Amber Bowen, who is a PhD candidate at the University of Aberdeen. Hey, Amber. Hey, John. And Grace Edmund, who recently passed her Viva and New Testament at King's College London. Hey, Grace. Hey, John. And Dr. Chris Porter, who is a postdoctoral research fellow at Trinity College Melbourne. Hey, Chris. Hey, John. And we have a very special guest. We have Dr. Beth Allison Barr, who is Associate Dean of Graduate Studies and Associate Professor of History at Baylor University, and the author of the forthcoming book that we're very excited to talk about today, The Making of Biblical Womanhood, How the Subjugation of Women Became Gospel Truth, coming out in April with Brazos. Thanks so much for joining us, Dr. Barr.
1: I am very happy to be here.
0: Well, we're very happy to have you. How about we begin by hearing a little bit about the main claims and the thesis of your new book?
1: Yes. So this thesis is one of the easiest theses I think I've ever written because essentially my argument is that biblical womanhood isn't biblical and that it was created by history. So it's a product of people, not a product of God.
2: Dr. Barr, do you mind uh, giving us just kind of a synopsis of how it is that you build that argument? And in particular, what are some of the main historical figures that you look at in the book?
1: Yes. Um, So the reason that I decided to start from the very beginning, which is essentially what I do, is because in many ways, this book is based upon uh, the way I teach women's history at Baylor. So I've been teaching women's history since 2008, and I teach uh, two I, t- I have two sections of my women's history class, and one of them goes from the ancient world um, to the medieval world, and then from the medieval world really to suffrage is kind of what I cover. Uh, so the way that I frame those classes is by starting off by talking to students about the existence of patriarchy. And this is something that's been, um, you know, a lot of my students at Baylor, Baylor's a Christian university, and a lot of my students are very unfamiliar or at least when I first started teaching, were very unfamiliar with talking about patriarchy. Or if they did talk about patriarchy, they saw it as sort of a feminist claim, um, something that didn't belong in their Christian world. And so I would, I often had to start, I would start with not hostile students, but students who um, were resistant to talking about structures of oppression And that as Christians, we can talk about structures of oppression. And in fact, we are called to help dismantle structures of oppression. So I would, so I start the class off by talking about the existence of patriarchy um, and what patriarchy is. And so, and essentially it is the systemic, it is systems that make women always second to men and always be under the authority of men. Um, For some women, this works out okay. Um, Things that historians call like the patriarchal bargain, where women actually are able to flourish within patriarchy by the choices that they make or because they're simply aristocratic women. But for many, many women, uh, patriarchy doesn't work out well for them. And because they are under, they have this sort of double burden that they carry where they may be lower class women, but then they are also then under the authority of not just men, but they are pushed out of education. They're pushed out of jobs. They're pushed out, out of anything that can help them have better lives. Um, so we begin, so I begin the book by helping, sort of assuming that my audience that I'm trying to reach is going to have the same resistance that my students have, not understanding what patriarchy is, um, and then also not understanding that it's something we should be talking about as Christians. So that's where I start us off with, is thinking about that patriarchy is something that has existed throughout the human narrative, and that it is something that has always been harmful to women, maybe not harmful for every woman, every woman but always harmful to women in general. Um, And so I move us from patriarchy then to talking about women in the biblical world. And I have to say this, I actually originally didn't wanna write a chapter on Paul um, because I was so tired. In some ways, I feel like this argument Um, over what Paul means has just gotten stuck in this rut, you know, either you believe Paul is freeing women or you don't believe Paul is freeing women. And it's like, how do you bring those two conversations together? And so I was like, I'm not going to talk about Paul. And it's funny, I was in my kitchen and I had this decided this and I was just like, I'm not going to do it. And my husband was sitting over at his computer. He wasn't even looking at me and he said, it won't work. And I was like, what do you mean? I'm just tired of this. And he said, if you don't convince, if you don't help people see how their worldview colors the way that they view Paul, he said, you're not going to, they're not going to get it. So I, I gave in and I wrote my chapter on Paul, which I'm now really, really glad that I did because I really, I think it does, it frames exactly what I'm trying to do in the book. That the way we approach women is influenced by the culture in which we live, and it's not actually influenced by the Bible. And as we see, so I walk us from the ancient world all the way up to modern times at the end, which is really crazy if you think about how short the book is. Um, But but really, what I try to do in each chapter is show how historical circumstances influence the way that we view women, and even though there is a continuity in that women are always seen as under the authority of men, the way we explain that changes. Um, One of my friends, when I first was working on this project, she, a really brilliant friend, and she was like, well, patriarchy shapeshifts. And I was like, whoa, that's a great phrase. Yes, patriarchy shapeshifts. And so it changes, which also tells us that um, patriarchy is not something that is a timeless biblical truth. Because the way we justify it morphs
2: throughout time, and we can trace it historically. One thing that I, I'm curious about as a, for you as a historian, um, in talking about how the way that we think about women, essentially you're arguing it's not something that's like rooted in our nature, that women are inferior to men. It's, right. a, it's a culturally and historically yes, constructed idea. Exactly what right I'm arguing. And um, there's some other thinkers, even outside of the Christian world, I'm thinking particularly of Jordan Peterson, who actually makes a case. And I think he, or at least some people attribute it to him that he's making a natural law case. Mm -hmm. I would argue that he's not actually doing natural law, like as it's understood across the Christian tradition, but he is essentially looking across time and space and saying, men are always this way. Women are always this way. It's some kind of, it's almost like a structuralism, a mix between natural law and structuralism that he's trying to do. Um, But his work is very, very influential, but it's, it's actually making the opposite claim and he's not doing it as a Christian, but he's saying these aren't necessarily historical constructs, but these are just, this is just how men and women operate. And you can't change that about them. I'm wondering if you have any reactions to that.
1: Yeah, so I would offer to Jordan Peterson Judith Bennett. (laughs) And Judith Bennett has a really fantastic book that she wrote in the early 2000s called History Matters. Um, And it's um, Patriarchy and the Challenge of Feminism, or Feminism and the Challenge of Patriarchy. I always get it confused, whichever. They're challenging each other. Um, And in this, what she talks about is she really debunks this idea that because there's continuity, that means that it has always been, the, you know, that continuity means that women have always been this way and men have always been this way. And what she argues for, she says, look, patriarchy is everywhere, but patriarchy is not everywhere the same. And so I would argue, and in fact, what I hear you arguing about Jordan Peterson, although I, I'm not familiar with his work, but I am familiar with these types of theories and ideas. Um, and so I would argue that actually this idea that women Are always sort of doing opposite things from men is actually a more modern idea. It's actually something that we find emerging um, in the, you know, this idea that there are two separate sexes that are completely different and always opposite. This is actually a more modern idea. In the ancient world, and I, I could get myself into trouble when I start talking about this, um, we used to have, we would read, and when I was in graduate school, Thomas Liqueur was still pretty um, hot, and so we would talk a lot about liqueur, but there, you know, there's this, in the, in the ancient and the medieval world, um, sex was a little more of, I would also call it a continuum, where on the one hand, you do have you know, women on one end and men on the other, but you could also slide along that continuum. And so problems with women often arose when they slid too close to the male and they were, you know, they were, they, they became, they were hotter instead of colder and men too, when they slowed, slid a little closer to women. Um, And there's even some fantastic medieval stories about people like spontaneously changing sexes, which are all sorts of you know, very interesting thinking about today's modern conversations. One of the most favorite ones that my students love um, is one where this woman is like running really fast, and she jumps over a fence, and her genitals fall out. They fall down, and so I mean, it's this crazy sort of thing. Um, but it's this also this, and I, I may get in trouble for saying this. I'm sorry. I teach women's history, which means I talk about everything. Um, I embarrass my kids all the time, but so it's it's sort of this idea that gender isn't. And I'm saying this carefully because I don't, there's a lot of nuance here, but gender isn't as fixed, um, that there is sort of this continuum. And, and today we live in a world where there's an idea that gender is more fixed. Um, and so even like in the medieval world, yes, there's biological differences. Men can't have babies. Women can have babies. But that doesn't mean that women don't act like men and men don't act like women. Does that make sense? Um, Whereas today, we sort of have the sense, since women have babies and men can't, that means they have to act completely differently. And that is more of a modern idea.
2: Yeah. Well, and then even the framework of modernism with kind of binary thinking and also sharp definitions that oftentimes stand over and against one another, um, that, that actually, just even from a philosophical standpoint, that most certainly is a modernist construct. Right. Dr.
3: Barr, thank you. That's so fascinating. And just to kind of hear about um, your route into this study. And I think putting a lot of this stuff in broader historical context is really useful. Um, I'm interested because the the book obviously defines or takes a particular view of what biblical womanhood is and how that's kind of used within patriarchal systems. And I'm curious to know whether you think that term has no value and is something to kind of to be debunked, essentially, Uh, or whether you would want to redefine it in a different way against kind of patriarchal ideology.
1: So when I originally started writing the book, my idea was I was going to spend the last chapter to talk about remaking, sort of the idea that here we were talking about the making of biblical womanhood. And by this biblical womanhood, I mean this very particular idea um, that I sort of trace how it emerges in history that women are destined um, to not be in leadership positions um, in, unless something has gone wrong um, and that they are destined for household. Um, and to be under the leadership of their husbands, whereas men are destined for public life, leadership, and authority over their household. So that's a very modern, this biblical, this idea of biblical womanhood. But my idea was to write the last chapter and to do remaking biblical womanhood. But by the time I got there, I was like, you know what? My argument is that God empowers all of us differently. And if you look through history, there's no pattern to who gets called to do what. Um, there's no, you know, it's God uses people who are ready and able and in places that he needs to use them. And so I don't want to be part. And in fact, you know, I have people, I've already gotten a little bit of criticism. People are like, well, you didn't tell us how women and men are supposed to be. And that's because I'm not sure God God tells us how women and men are supposed to be. I think God tells us that we are to do his work and that he calls us to do things. And that while sometimes that may be connected to our roles as husbands and wives or single women and single men, sometimes it's just because we're a person who's in a particular place that needs to be used there. So I don't really wanna, I think we spend a lot of our time thinking this is how God wants us to be. And I don't really want to do that. I think that's gotten us in a lot of trouble. I want people to be able to be how God has called them. Uh, So I decided not to do that in the last chapter. I decided not to talk about remaking biblical womanhood because my whole point is that God, we should all be able to do what God has called us to do, whatever that may look like. So that's why I decided not to do that. Um and as I said, I know I'm going to get criticism for not creating a gender theology. Um, but I think I'll just let God do that. <laughs> if that helps you, Grace.
3: Oh yeah, definitely. And um yeah, I'm secretly quite pleased about that actually, because I work oh, good. on masculinity. And I think I similarly feel like the concept of biblical manhood is is just useless, really, on the whole. <laughs> um yes. so it sounds like we're kind of doing parallel things. So um
1: you that know, and <laughs> it's, it's funny because people become very resistant to it and they say, well, that means that you don't believe in, you know, biological realities or you say women, I'm thinking of Elizabeth Elliot, let women be women, and, you know, let me be a woman. And sort of the idea is, is you can still do that. Nobody's telling you, you can't do that. You know, if you, if you are called to be a stay-at-home wife and mother, do that. There's nothing, it's just saying you can't put that, impose that on other people. And say that it's biblically grounded. Well,
2: and a big problem is that what we mean by biblical manhood or biblical womanhood is so mm-hmm. often just a trope or a particular cookie cutter or a very specific yes. definition that has no give for the personality, no give for the, ser- you know, right. it's very little and rigid. And so it breaks, yes. <laughs> um, and it's also superimposed in many ways. Right. And it's often used, I think it's really used,
1: uh, Beverly Gavinta gets at this so beautifully, where it's often used um, to police borders or boundaries setting and to define orthodoxy and to say, if you don't do this, if you don't look like this, then you are outside the bounds of orthodoxy. And that's just not something we see Paul do. Maybe I can help segue us to Paul. That's not Paul's point, He's not drawing boundaries and telling us what we have to do. He's dealing with problems in the church and calling us all to unity despite those problems.
4: Thanks, Beth. I find it really interesting uh, that the a lot of the history of and and as a professor who teaches women's history, you yes. know this very well. The, the history of women in our in our world, history of women in the in the Bible, is often written by men or rewritten by yes. men uh, certainly uh, we have the the case of, of junior uh, who mm-hmm. becomes junius yes uh, and is is transgendered if you like uh is uh goes from being a, a woman to being a man uh, but then we we seem to have enough examples even poking through our history of women who are breaking everyone would call the social norms of their period. Right. Uh, so Cl- Claudia Eugenia Torre in uh, Colosse, who owns enough of, uh, of Colossae to have her own mint, to yes. strike her own coins, pointing <laughs> out that she is a, a, a carer, a widow. Um, you have the, the various different, um, the women who, who come alongside the desert fathers and who become the desert mothers and, right. and, and things like this. I'm, what I'm interested in is how we construe memory as as tradents. Um, and this sort of pattern, I think, leads right through to where we find ourselves today. Yeah. Uh, how, how do we uh, get out of the the memory struggle where the memory of the things of the past define where we go in the future or define yes. how we argue about them?
1: So um, I'm going to take us back to Judith Bennett. I think everybody needs to read her book, History Matters. And one of the things that, in fact, I was sort of, inspired by thinking about how we forget women's history by one of the chapters that she has. And I always make my students read this, um, this chapter, and it's what she starts off with is she goes through all of the medieval textbooks, um, the most popular medieval textbooks that are published between like 2002 and 2004, and finds that there's only that out of all of them, there's only five women. That are mentioned consistently in all these, I mean, which is crazy if you think about it. And then the other women who are mentioned, you know, they're sort of they're the they're the notable women. Um, they're the the unique women. And they're often, though, the way they're painted, they're always painted sort of, and you add them on to the male stories. Um, they're the women, you know, the reason you mention Emma of Normandy is um is because of the, the Norman invasion of England. Um, the reason that you mention Matilda of Tuscany um, is because of the investiture controversy between the Holy Roman Emperor and the, um, Gregory VII. And so you only add in the women as they fit into these masculine stories. And so what that creates for us is it creates for us a history in which women are always seen as only important based upon the men that they are associated with. And it also means that we never tell a history that's really from the woman's point of view. Our history is almost, you know, and this is, if you look at history textbooks too, we've been writing the same narrative in history textbooks since the 19th century. So one of the things is, as a women's historian, I get to look and see continuities in women's voices. And so if you think about like Christine de Pizan in the early 15th century, um, who wrote the, you know, the City of Ladies, and then if you think about Mary Estelle at the early, you know, the early 17th century, who, of course, wrote a serious proposal to the ladies, um, and then you think about Mary Wollstonecraft, who most people know, who wrote A Vindication of the Rights of Women um, you know, in, in the 18th century, a hundred, you know, about a century after Mary Estelle, one of the things that they all call for is they say a big problem is women aren't educated. Um, is we don't know. And of course, Christine de Pizan, one of the things that she's responding to is she's going back through history and finding all of the important women who have done notable things for God um, and saying, look, women, you know, you you can't disparage women because God didn't disparage women and because women have always been used throughout history in these important ways. And so what we find is we find women who think about the who think about the structures of patriarchy? Although I'm not I'm not going to call Christine de Pizan a feminist, so just ignore that and just let me be broad brush. Um, but the you know if we think women realize that one of the big problems is that we don't remember ourselves, we don't remember our past, and a key to that is because women aren't educated and because women don't write the histories. And so a big part of overcoming this. Is as women is we've got to we've got to keep telling our histories and we've got to start getting them into the main narrative. Um, and so you can certainly see how this like at the end of my medieval chapter, I went through the modern popular church textbooks. I mean history, uh, history church history books, and women aren't in them. And when they are in them, their roles are downplayed. Um, you know, Hildegard of Bingen is not a preacher. Um, you know, she's a mystic who has visions and only talks to certain people or she's, you know, known for her prayers um, instead of being somebody who went on preaching tours, uh, you know, four or five preaching tours throughout Europe.
4: I'm also thinking in the Old Testament, we have uh, many of the figures uh, such as Hulda, Huldah, yes. Deborah, uh, who are rewritten in uh, the context of, well, Deborah is rewritten in the context of Barak. Oh, huda is written yeah. in the context of um, Josiah. And so, it, it, yeah, I think you're absolutely uh, right, spot on.
1: I'll, I'll add to that. Um, for the first time, really, I started reading Recovering Biblical Manhood and Womanhood, uh, mostly because I needed to look at one section in it. And I'd read pieces of it before, but I really hadn't read the whole thing. Um, I just didn't really have the stomach for it. But I was reading um, and it was, I had to read it out loud. I could hardly get through it because I was laughing so hard, but it was talking about Deborah. And it said that Deborah, do y'all know this in the book? It says that Deborah actually was not a public, she didn't prophesy in public that she actually did it. I mean, it was just, it's like insane. It's like, well, what do you think she was doing? I mean, (laughs) you know, how do you think she was doing this? It's just crazy. So we've rewritten women to make them fit the way we think they should be, um, instead of letting history speak for itself.
0: I heard a, a great paper once about some of these kind of um, actually adjustments to the text o- over time, uh, mm-hmm. looking at commentaries on, on judges or actually looking at commentaries on First Corinthians or First Timothy and pointing out how complementarian exegesis has changed over the years and, yes. and sort of how they have appropriated these different things. And I'm, I'm kind of curious about sort of the main accusation that you often hear about, you know, some of the things that, that you're working on perhaps is that, mm-hmm. um, oh, this is just sort of a capitulation to broader culture and the trends yep. of feminism. But I wonder if you could, uh, address that in relation to actually the capitulation to the culture of patriarchy.
1: Right. Which is, of course, what I argue. I argue that um, that complementarianism, instead of standing against the tide of culture and the tide of feminism, is actually giving in to one of the longest structural pieces of structural oppression in history, which is making women be subordinate um, to other people and and if history shows us that any time we say that some people simply because of the way they are made are under the power of other people, it turns out badly. (laughs) You know, it it just turns out badly. Um, So it seems to me that if we can, and this is one of the reasons why I go back to the ancient world and work up through the medieval and the Reformation world, and a lot of this is history that evangelical Christians like me, you know, I mean, I grew up Baptist, I've been in the evangelical world all my life, and most of what I talk about, you know, they, they know a little bit about Paul, they know nothing about the ancient world, Sumeri, I mean, they may have had world history classes at some point, some people may be more interested in this than others, but in general, we don't talk about, you know, we don't talk about Mesopotamia, we don't talk about ancient India, um, we certainly don't talk about the medieval world, because they were all Catholic, and so how do they relate at all to us? Uh, so there's this, these huge gaps. And so what we're unable to see is that you know, it is that these patriarchal systems exist, and then again, that they are used the way that the reason why women can't preach in the medieval world is not the same as why women can't preach today. Um, and this, this matters because this shows us that our arguments are shifting about why women can't preach, they're shifting to our cultural norms. Um, so for example, in the medieval world, women, women do preach, but they are the anomalies. Um, the reason that they are able to preach is because they are able to transcend their sex. Women in the medieval world mostly cannot preach because their bodies are seen as innately evil. I mean, there's something innately wrong, corrupt in the female body, which makes them unable to have this type of leadership. But Women, by rejecting their sex, can actually achieve. So this is why monasticism becomes so important and women religious. And so we do get women as leaders and preachers, but they are seen as anomalies. And they also, of course, are built upon these biblical women. You know, the medieval world believed that Mary Magdalene was the apostle to the apostles. And that she went on preaching tours too, um, and converted. You know, with the authority of Peter, that she went. That Peter Peter said, "Let her preach," and she went on these preaching tours. So the way the medieval world explained Mary Magdalene away is they said, "Yes, women can preach, but only women who are able to achieve this sort of special." You know, they're able to reject their, move away from their sex. Um, But in the post-Reformation world, we were we said, "Okay." Women and men are, are equal. They're spiritually equal. The priesthood of all believers. That's not exactly what the priesthood of all believers means. You all know that, but anyway. But they're they're spiritually equal. So now we have to come up with a new reason why women can't preach because our culture says that women um, should not be in leadership. That male power, uh, you know, is the is should be the definition. So the new reason that we come up with is that now women are always under the authority of men because of Paul. So we still keep what the continuity is women are out of leadership, but the reason for it changes and is based upon culture.
3: Can I ask you a bit more, I guess, specifically on Paul, um, in terms of thinking about the way that, yeah, readings and interpretation and texts are shaped by the culture that they exist within. For you, is is Paul sort of um, kind of going against patriarchal ideology, or do you think there's redemptive ways of reading Paul within that kind of broader culture? How do you sort of, wrestle with some of those, those texts. <laughs> right.
1: So, um, you know, one of the, the scariest, the two scariest chapters for me to write were the Paul chapter and the Reformation chapter, simply because of the scholarly conversations. And I was like, oh, I do not want everybody, all my 16th century friends to be angry at me, nor all of these Pauline scholars. I was like, oh. So those were the two scariest chapters for me to write. And I worked really, really hard um, on both of those. But it seems to me that Paul, I'm going to, I'm going to kind of lean back on, on Beverly Gavinta again. Obviously I'm very much a fan of her because I think, I think she really gets Paul um, in a way that she's able to put the whole picture together. And so one of the things that she says is that, you know, Paul is not, he's not really for women or against women. And I'm paraphrasing sort of her. I mean, he clearly is living in a world that has a lot of, um, you know, limitations on women and concerns about women. But at the same time, I mean, Paul's really more utilitarian. Paul's about getting the gospel done and out there and using who's available. And so Phoebe, she has the money to do this. She has the ability to read this text. I need her to go back and take this text to Rome. Go, Phoebe, go. You know, I mean, it's, I think Paul is more utilitarian. Um, And I think he also, because of the gospel, he does see Jesus using women. I mean, you know, Jesus speaks to women and men in very similar ways. Uh, Paul knows this. Paul, Paul knows the women who are prominent in Jesus's ministry. We downplay these women a lot. Um, we try to, like, separate them out and say, oh, you know, there was the the only women at the cross were probably these women that are mentioned in the Bible. And we don't think about the fact that these are often representative. that. You know, where there's one or two women, there's probably a lot of women who are going along with Jesus. And so uh, just like we assume there's a lot of men, there's probably a lot of women, too, in these. So I think, I think what Paul is doing is he's building on what he knows. And even in the Old Testament, we, we see this, too, that God uses women in these types of ways. And Paul, Paul would have known the Old Testament um, very well. He was very educated. And he would have known about the female prophets and how God, you know, and Miriam um, and Huldah and Deborah, uh, he would have known all these stories. And so I think, I think his logical assumption is let women do what God has always let women do. Um, And so I think if, so if I can do that, maybe I see Paul more practical more utilitarian, you know, he's like, he gets into the churches and he's like, y'all are, y'all are missing the gospel. You're messing around with these problems and you're missing the gospel, Um, you know, instead of acting, instead of working together, you're dragging in all these Corinthian issues that belong to your, you know, pagan background. He's like, stop it. Um, I think Paul goes around and says, stop it a lot. It says we're we're working towards the gospel and we need everybody on board to do that.
3: I I think that's quite helpful nuance. And um, I think it's been interesting for me thinking specifically about masculinity and the way that Paul is so often polarized. Um, right. And I, I get nervous, I think, of readings that try to really rehabilitate Paul and see him as kind of totally at odds with um, the kind of world around him. So I think, yes, doing slightly more this recovery stuff, I think, is helpful. And the nuance that you've articulated there is, is useful in that way.
2: Well, I'm wondering if we can move into more of a contemporary setting, particularly looking at... Um, Biblical manhood and womanhood. You referenced the Piper and Grudem book, sort of that enterprise, which we all know is very much an enterprise. Yes, it is. And even though the the word biblical, I mean, it when you say biblical manhood and womanhood, you mean a very very specific definition of what that is, right? Um, And so I'm wondering if you could share with us some of just the historical traces that are involved in that uh, in this movement. and and how you approach it in the book as well, right? Um, so I'll I'll start this off by telling
1: a story. One of the things my husband, when he finally read the entire book, um, he kept saying, and he was writing discussion questions for me for churches. Uh, and so when he finally got through it, he was like, "Why didn't you tell this story and this story and this story?" And I was like, "Because I didn't have enough time." And so one of the stories that I think fits that I didn't tell that I think fits in really well with what you just asked me, Amber, um, is about when the church that we were in began to start as men's ministry and one of the books that they were using was sort of based I'm not going to name it by name but it was a men's bible study um, on masculinity and how godly men are supposed to act and behave and they were talking about it at the staff meeting with all the pastors and the pastor who was in charge of the men's ministry he was looking through the book and he said well he said, the only problem I have with this is it doesn't have very much scripture. <laughs> he was like, I'm going to have to go in and like find scripture to support these things. And that always really stuck with me. Yeah. And you could see why, because this idea of godly masculinity and, and Kristen Dume talks about this really well. This is not, this is built in the circumstances of the 20th century. It's, and it's been grafted onto the Bible. Um, it is not something that is biblical. We just, you know, it's not biblical. Um, so we have to think about why this happened. And while there's, there's many reasons for it, um, most, a lot of them that have to do with, um, the trauma of world war one and world war two, um, where, you know, I talk about this a lot when we teach women's history and we talk about how, you know, if you talk about the early 20th century that we do see a lot of things, women pushing for the vote, women beginning to get um, go to you know, education, especially in the U.S. and the U.K. It's not so good for them yet, um, but they do start getting degrees eventually um, in the 1920s and the 1930s. And so we begin to see things opening up. We also begin to see a lot of, there's a lot of women involved in the evangelical movement. Um, we see women, you know, most missionaries are women. Uh, You know, they sometimes go with spouses, but missionaries who are out on the field by themselves are women. Um, The single women who are flourishing all over the place, you know, we we can even talk about Catherine Bushnell. That's why she translates the Bible. Um, It's because she is a missionary in China. And so we can think we can think about um, Helen Barrett Montgomery, uh, who I love her because, of course, she translates. She's the president of the North American Baptist Association in 1921. She's the first woman elected to any denominational leadership in 1921. Um, and then she translates the Bible. She's the first woman to translate the Bible and have it printed by a publisher. And the reason she does it is because she's teaching Sunday school of essentially junior high boys, um, and they don't understand the KJB. And so she writes the new centera- um, centenary translation to... Ha- to help the Bible reach these boys, so that they can they can understand the gospel, and so we think about all of these really significant women in leadership roles. Um, and then these women sort of continue on with this in World War II. They continue, you know they 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 hold down the fort. They take over all these jobs. Um, they keep the economies going. And then after the war, when the men come home, there begins to be this concerted push. Because they're worried about what happens when these men come home after this horrible war, and they don't have jobs because the women are doing them. So we begin to see this. You know, we can see it in women's journals and magazines. And I'm not a 20th century historian, so I'm glazing this. But I think, I think, I think I'm. This is solid <laughs> in what we see going on. We see this push to try to talk women to go back to their house. To domesticity, we think about the 1950s, Um, and of of course, the problem is is that a lot of women don't really want to do this. Um, You know, they're happy having families and being married, but they also want to work. They, you know they they want to be able to do other things, and so we see this push, and we also begin to see, you know, we see this push also against laws in the U.S. Um, Women, married women. You know, women couldn't take out loans. They couldn't buy cars without male cosigners. I mean, this actually went on until the eighties. Um, you know, the late seventies and eighties. We just don't really understand this world that women that women had to have male co- cosigners in order to do these types of things. And so, this is really what feminism, the um, the new wave of feminism at the end of the twentieth century, is born out of these these legal problems that women can't simply do business like men um, because of these continuous. You know, this is what Ruth. One of the things that Ruth Bader Ginsburg did is she began to take apart these laws that kept women from being able to um, to function in the business world, just like men. And so, we, the feminist movement, sort of arises out of this. And with this too, we see a lot of women are at seminaries; they're at Baptist seminaries; they're preaching, um, and. A lot of men are very concerned about this. And so in the late 1970s, we have what we call the conservative resurgence. And a lot of this is really targeted at trying to reinforce these 1950s values, get women back in the home, out of our jobs, especially out of the pastorate jobs. And the other side of this very ugly story is, of course, the civil rights movement. You know, I have, a, I have a friend who's also a historian, and I've quoted her I quote her several times, but she said, "When they couldn't oppress black people anymore, they moved to women, to their wives. And it's sort of like, you know, we have to be above somebody. Uh, you know this is innately within our, within our manhood this sort of this idea that we have to be in superior positions. Um, and so we begin to see this reinforcement. Of pushing women out of the pulpit, um, pushing women into the home in, in the Christian world. And then, of course, as I write in my chapter seven, um, we tie this to the gospel itself. And so we begin to see, like with the gospel coalition, which has a lot of very faithful people in it, but written into the gospel coalition is this um, is the idea that people that only people who who believe in traditional male-female roles, you know, uh, that, that they are the people who interpret the Bible the best. And so while you can still be Christian, you are not the right type of Christian. You are not the Christian who really understands the gospel. And this is something that Tim Keller says. Uh, you know, Tim Keller, he says that if that people who don't believe, who believe that women can be pastors and in leadership, that their understanding of the Bible is suspect, um, because the only right way to read the Bible is that men are, only men are called to leadership, And, and that is part of the gospel itself. This is something Russell Moore, and I really hated, I really hated criticizing Russell Moore because he's done so many good things. He's such a kind man, but I just think he's wrong about this. And I think it's dangerous because he's so influential um, where he makes this call in the early 2000s. He says, we've got to rewrite um, complementarianism, patriarchy, in a sense, to convince you know women that, it, that they should be submissive to their husbands because this is part of the gospel. He says, you know, we've got to get it in the gospel. And I think this is the scary thing for women and men today, is that we believe that male-female roles is tied up in the gospel of Christ itself.
4: Uh, I, I think that's great. And, and I really find it interesting this push in America and in the West in general towards um, a, a return, if you like, a constructed return to something which didn't necessarily exist before. That's yes, so, right. Uh, yeah, after the war, you, you, you have this, everyone talks about the return. Um, yeah. And it's really the men who are retru- returning and finding that, um, that the, the, the situation that they've returned to, they don't like. Um, <laughs> at the same yes. time, you, you have uh, psychologists talking about, well, these are the typologies. So building on uh, Carl Jung uh, and his theories of personality, uh, these are the typologies which go on. So men have to do these sort of things. Yes. You find it, I find it really interesting, especially in the United States, that a lot of the things that psychologists sent men out to do to cope with PTSD effectively uh, were to do the things which uh, traditionally in the in the United States would have been done by slaves uh, so uh, go out round up cattle uh, go out and uh, chop wood in the in the um, in in the forest and things like this right. and so we we have this this transferral of, um, of 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 power or an empowered uh, dynamic which then comes into the church right one, one thing I'm interested in with, with within all of this is how this works outside of a, an American context I guess um, oh yeah so that so that that's a what I, from what I can see is a fairly clear narrative in the U.S. but it doesn't seem to happen in other cultures so uh, people return from <sighs> yeah. from the war to Italy and uh, they return to what has become well, what always was, I'd argue, a matrilineal culture. Um, so rather than a patriarchal, or maybe patriarchal in, in its front, outward-facing fashion, but it's it's strongly matrilineal. So the there is a a, a social dynamic to the interaction of women, which uh, works behind the scenes to make the culture function. Mm-hmm. I, I live in a here in Melbourne. I live in a very Italian neighbourhood. Uh, if you ask anyone around here who makes the decisions at home, uh, it's <laughs> it, the, the the answer comes back is it was, it's the, the, the nonna, the the grandmother is the one who yeah. makes all of the decisions. She's the one that you do not cross. Uh, notionally, it might be the um, the men, but uh, in reality, the social reality of things, it's the women. Um, I'm wondering what can we learn from that uh, right. from, those, from those cultures which haven't had this patriarchal shift.
1: So. Um, that was, if I had had another chapter in the making of biblical womanhood, maybe one day I'll write an epilogue. Um, it would have been how, if we take biblical womanhood outside and we look at it globally, that it completely falls apart. And, and once again, what I think, Chris, what I think you're showing is that these ideas of what women and men are supposed to do really is culturally constructed. There is not a constant throughout history. Um, we want to make there, you know, a uh, For us, as I'm just, I'm very clearly, we've done, my family's done DNA tests. I am so white European. You know, I just, everything. I'm just very white, Northern white European. I have a little bit of Southern Spain, but that's it. Okay. So um, this is, and my world. We have tried very hard to argue that there is, you know, that there is this constant for how women and men are supposed to ha- behave. And it very much also is associated with class values. I mean, you can see this definitely in the U.S., like in the South, there's this idea that women who stay at home and don't have to work, that that's because, you know, it's a, it's a luxury that they're in a higher class. It's a mark of being, um, of being a Southern lady. And this is, this is a privilege this is not something that most women can do and that most families can do, nor that most families really want to. And so if you look out broader, more globally, on the one hand, you will see the continuity of patriarchy, but you will see it manifest in different ways um, because it's tied to culture. But you will also see That sort of these ideas, like for example, if you move if you move like to Asia, I mean, there's this really fascinating work that's been done on 19th and early 20th century Asia, where we see that some of the primary pastors and churches are women, and that you know Christianity today actually had this great article on how when um, biblical manhood and womanhood, recovering biblical manhood and womanhood, begin to be imported. To Asia, um, that they begin, that we have these female pastors that all of a sudden start being pushed out of the pulpit. And in fact, just a little while ago, I did an interview with a woman who was a missionary um, for the um, International Mission Board, the Southern Baptist International Mission Board. And she was overseas in Asia during, she was a single woman. She was overseas in Asia when um, the Baptist Faith and Message was you know, the 2000 Baptist Faith and Message, and she was told that she had to sign it. Um, and so she talked about how, you know, the impact that this has, that um, the church, she was going to this international church in Korea, uh, and once she's began to see the women that used to always be on the stage and pray and public, she began to see them disappear. And when she started asking questions about it, what she found was that it was this influx of this Western idea and that it was when sort of the Western leaders began to come and preach at these international churches that they carried with them these Western ideas and started pushing women out of the pulpit. Um, and so it's very much, I think, I think what we... As Westerners with our Western goggles and especially in the US, where we can't even learn other people's languages, um, we, we we don't realize how Eurocentric and class privileged is the idea of biblical manhood and womanhood. Um, and so I think if we push that out globally, it really if we start looking at it through the lens of other cultures. Um, it just completely falls apart, and we realize that it, it's that it is constructed on our culture, that it is not constructed on the Bible. Um, part of the story of pushing it out globally too is the spread of the ESV, <laughs> which is somebody has to do a whole dissertation on the impact of the ESV um, and what it has done on, on the global in the
2: global Christianity. Dr. Barr, the last couple of weeks have been um, quite intense uh, online with people talking about the newly released report from Ravi Zacharias International Ministries, and then in the past couple of years, also just reports of sexual abuse coming from the Southern Baptist denomination. And we're wondering if you discuss the problem of sexual abuse in your book, or if you have a way to kind of think about it and talk about it in light of your historical research. Yes. Um, I do get to it in the last chapter of my book,
1: which I won't give away any spoilers. Um, but essentially I decided, as I said, I already told you that I decided to not do a chapter on remaking biblical womanhood because I didn't really think I was arguing that by the time I got to the end, but I did want to talk about what I call the, um, the hidden underbelly of this idea of, of patriarchy, of Christian patriarchy, of biblical manhood and womanhood, whatever you want to call it. And this is a historical continuity, is that whenever you place women in legally, religiously, under the authority of men, where women do not have avenues of recourse where they can actually get out, where women are not included um, in leadership conversations, where women do not have visible women who actually have the power to help them, that what we see is the continuity of abuse. The continuity of sexual abuse, the continuity of physical abuse, the continuity of emotional abuse. Um, There have been a lot of complementarian preachers who have and and thinkers and writers who have tried to argue that this is not a reality, that the only time abuse exists is when men aren't acting like servant leaders. The problem is, is that their voices are becoming much more hollow as the church to And these uh, sex abuse scandals keep coming out. Um, Kristen Kobes DuMez has completely under—I mean, has just pulled the rug out from any idea that ideas about women. And in fact, you know, this one of the things I argue too: ideas about women matter. And when you argue that men are superior to women, and that's the argument that if men, that women cannot be in leadership because there is something innate about them that doesn't allow them to do this. And you can make that sound pretty. I don't care how pretty you make that sound. That is the argument of complementarianism is that there is something innately wrong with women, which in some ways is the same as the ancient world, okay? That there is something innately wrong with women that they cannot lead. Um, and that means that women, um, that, men are taught, which is what Kristen really unpacks, that men are taught that they are innately superior, that there is something about them that makes them. And you could think about this. I think about this like with churches that teach that women can't teach boys over the age of 13. What does that do to teenage boys' minds when they realize that their mothers and that their sisters and that the other women in the church, that because they are female, that they don't have the ability to teach teenage boys. It teaches teenage boys that there is something about them that makes them better than women. Ideas matter. And what we see with Ravi Zacharias is that ideas matter. He believed that he could use women and treat women as sex objects, and that that was separated from what he saw himself as doing for God. And the only way you can really reconcile is that is that he truly believed that, that there was a gender hierarchy, and that what he was doing to women was OK because he was because women are not human the way he is. And that's what it teaches us. Um, complementarianism teaches us that women are not human, and people are going to get mad at me, and I'm going to get some ugly emails for saying that out loud, but that's the reality of it, um, which is why. You know, I think Dorothy L. Sayers just says it so beautifully, where she says that, you know, if we look at it throughout, throughout history, that men are always considered to be weir and homo, which in Latin, both of those words, weir is masculine, homo is humanity, whereas women are always femina, women are always other, women are always under the authority of men, and this makes men not treat women as human.
0: Well, Dr. Barr, thank you so much for your time. This has been really fascinating. We appreciate your historical insights and and just really look forward to checking out your new book when it appears.
1: Thank you so much. I've really enjoyed this. So thanks for having me on.
0: If you'd like more engagement of theology, culture, and discipleship from the Two Cities, you can find us on Facebook, Instagram, or visit us at our website at thetwocities.com. If you like the content that we put out here on the Two Cities podcast, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts.